everyone. I'm Dr. Yosefa Fogel-Rubel, and this is One-on-One Women Talk Torah, a series brought to you by Matan Women's Institute for Torah Study. Welcome back to Matan's One-on-One Parsha podcast, where we spend about 30 minutes discussing deep thematic points about the Parsha. Our series on Bamidbar is titled Growing Pains, The Journey Towards Responsibility. Each episode explores the manner in which the Parsha reflects the maturation of the people and Moshe's leadership during the wilderness period. If you would like to sponsor a podcast episode in honor memory of a loved one, please contact the Matan office via telephone or email us at podcast.matan.org.il. These sponsorships enable us to keep creating new content, so if you have deliberated until now, don't hesitate to be in touch. Parshat Balak is an incredibly unusual parsha, told almost entirely from a perspective outside of the Torah's general purview. The parsha ends with the episode of Israel's sexual and perhaps idolatrous sins with the women of Moab and Pinchas's zealous murder of one particular sinner. While last year's episode 64 delved deeper into this vignette, this year we'll be focusing entirely on the story of Balak and Bilam with a beloved returning guest, Rachel Sharansky Danziger. She first joined us for episode 63 on Parshat Chukat to discuss Moshe's leadership style, for episode 86, where we spoke about the episode of Dina, and episode 94 on Parshat B'Shalach. Rachel blogs about the intersections between life, parenting, history, and text for the Times of Israel, 929, Feller, and other online venues. This year, Rachel taught two courses at Matan's Jerusalem branch, one on the Book of Shemot and a Hebrew course on Shoftim, and she also teaches virtually at Yeshivat Maharat in New York City and at Mayan Torah from the Sources in Boston. Rachel, it is a pleasure to have you back. It's always a pleasure to speak with you, Yosefa. You're tying for the most uh, the most returning appearances. <laughs> you and Tanya are, are tied for first place. Thank you. <laughs> so happy to have you here. And let's uh, let's jump into this parsha. As we said, it's it's so unusual. And you know, I think Chazal uh, speak about this very eloquently when they speak about it as really a, a sefer in and of itself. Uh, we will leave on aside what that means in terms of. The, the creation of the Torah as we see it now, but they looked at this parasha as a separate creation. Uh, and really, it is. It's totally unique. It's, as you'll get into, is told from a different perspective. And we look at Am Yisrael through, through different eyes than we, than we saw until now. So why don't we start off with that, with that idea? I just want to add and say that it's not just that we're looking at it from different eyes, it's that we're abandoning a very well-established space that we've inhabited from the beginning of Sefer Shemot. From the beginning of Sefer Shemot, we were constantly focused on the discursive space between God, the people, and certain individuals, like most prominently Moshe. And even if we followed one of them to the exclusion of others, for example, when Moshe ran away to Midian, it was still very clearly a strand of the same discursive space. And then suddenly now, that space becomes an object that we're looking at from the outside. And I think that beyond the fact that it's a shocking plot device, and I totally understand why Chazal felt that it was a separate book, and it's, what is this? Where is it coming from? I think it sheds light on certain aspects of the Israelite project on what we're supposed to be doing. It sheds light on certain aspects of the Israelite project on what we're supposed to be doing as we're going through the growing pains the series is dedicated to. And it does it in ways that the more usual normative you know, focus that we got used to and will get used to again on what's happening between Moshe, God, and the people is not letting us access. 
And first and foremost, I think that this time that we dwell within the consciousness of Balak and Bil'am and in the interactions between them and in the actions they take allows us to gain an insight into the question, what is it exactly that the Israelites are supposed to be an alternative for? Because we're told consistently and constantly from the beginning of the Exodus that we're supposed to be an alternative. We're supposed to be a different way of life. And every now and then we're told what it is about the way of life that we're supposed to not exactly replace, but be a counter. Repair, repair. some sort of tikkun or, or improvement over. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So we're told what's the problem with it. We're told... Don't bring your children to the Molech. Don't sacrifice your children like these people do. Don't worship idols on every hill and under every tree. But this only gives us a very shallow, or I should say, paper-thin understanding of what it is that we're supposed to be an alternative for. And I only really realized that, honestly, this year when I was traveling with my family to Japan. And going into Japan, I thought I know what idolatry is. Idolatry is this thing people did thousands of years ago when they bowed down to idols believing that the idols can grant their wishes for some reason that doesn't make any sense to me as a modern person. Forget a Jew, just as a modern person. Or it is a symbolic tool that we use when we talk about not worshipping celebrities, not worshipping money, not worshipping our own ambition, etc., etc. All those things that teachers in school told us. To try and make idolatry relevant to our lives. Exactly. <laughs> and then I went to Japan and idolatry means something very different there. And I really fully realized it one day when we went into a hotel's gift shop. And if you've ever been to Japan, you know that it's full of beautiful things. And we walk through the store and there's all these uh, origami paper and chopsticks and all kinds of beautiful things and dolls, lots and lots of dolls, all of the same figurine. And as we walk through the store, we see two Japanese women, two older women, making these dolls. And it's so cool. It's, a, it's an ancient craft. They're reviving, and, or not even reviving. It was never lost. They're just continuing the misora of their craft. And we're looking at it, and we're like, oh, we should buy a few of those as a souvenir from this town with this figurine. And then we keep walking down the store, and there's a little tiny cute Shinto uh, temple right there, like a little Shinto shrine on the wall, and the figurines are hanging in it, and there's food before them. <laughs> so we're like, okay, let's take the things out of the shopping bag now. <laughs> we're not buying these particular figurines. But it really opened my eyes to the fact that when Japanese people place food, for example, in the Shinto temple for the figurines, they can't mean what I think they mean. Because they would go and then bow down to a Buddhist temple down the street in the same hour. So clearly, it's not some sort of ideological drive that tells them this particular figurine is God. This particular figurine has divine power. There's something else going on. And the more time we spent there, the more I realized that if I really want to understand what idolatry is, I need to try and understand not just the practice, not the symptom, but the unwritten, unspoken assumptions in people's minds and people's emotions that go into it. And, and you asked people about that when you were there? Yeah, we did. I mean, there's a very serious language barrier. Yeah. <laughs> but we asked some Jews we met there, and we, we gained some insight. That's a little bit beside the point for our discussion now, but it's a fascinating conversation in and okay. of itself. Yeah. It made me revisit my understanding of idolatry as I read Torah and Tanakh in general. And it made me realize that there's a real dearth 
of insight into what motivated the idol worshippers. What was it they were thinking? And we read all kinds of things into it. But what is it that they actually thought? And when our Parsha brutally <laughs> pulls us out of the discursive space we occupied until now, and we'll go back to occupying by the end of the Parsha, it also allows us to spend time within the minds, within the, you know, look at the world through the eyes of two people who clearly look at the world very differently from us and understand through that a little bit of what it is that we're meant to replace. I think there also may be, this may be a stretch, okay, it's just a suggestion, but there may be some sort of suggestion on the part of the Torah that it's worth investing thought once in a while about how you're perceived on the outside. Meaning if the Torah would have been an only internal document and all we had, it's, it's the inside story, it's the inside jokes, the inside travails, it's all, it's, it's our personal story. And then you have this piece, which as, as we said, is really externalizing Am Yisrael. And maybe, maybe there's, maybe it's not just an idea of let's keeping a tradition that's relevant to this time period in the desert, but this idea that it's worth, certainly as a nation, we are supposed to take into account to a certain degree, how we're perceived on the outside. We may not agree with them. We may think that they're erroneous, but it's worth spending some time, just one parsha even, some time thinking about is what we're doing succeeding, right? Or are the messages we want to be getting across, are they actually coming across the way they, they want, the way we want them to be? You know, it's it's very tempting to sort of ghettoize and sort of be very insular and within ourselves. And there's something about this parsha which sort of pushes us out, as you said, and it and it reminds us that it's important for us to m- interact enough successfully with the outside so that whatever message we are trying to cross is actually going to get there. Because if we stay too internal, we're going to lose we're going to lose our space, and we're also going to lose our ability to influence the world around us. I think that's a really excellent point, and I think it's really interesting that we take Bil'am's words, the words of a man who has malicious intent towards us, and weave them into our daily prayer every day. We say, Matovu Alecha, right? And it's almost a daily reminder of what you're talking about, Yosefa, that idea that let's not just think about what, how things make sense for us within our experience, but how are we perceived? Are we still perceived as Matovu Alecha, Israel? I think also, interestingly, though, at that point, um, he's sort of already come to terms with the fact that God is not going to let him curse. So I almost feel like we've take, we take we take a piece. It's just liturgically, right? This isn't like a, a long-standing halachic decision. But we take a piece when it's almost that there's been a success, meaning this person who's coming to try and do evil has sort of made peace with the fact that he's not going to be able to. So I feel like... There, there's like a, it's a triumphant moment there that by putting it in the tefillah, it's not just, oh, the evildoer wanted to do evil. It's that the evildoer realized that he's not going to be able to. And that's the piece that we take with us, which is like almost, it's almost a, a sweeter moment. Yeah, it's interesting. I would have focused, I mean, I agree with you, but I think I would have focused on a slightly different angle. Instead of calling it a triumph, I would call it revelation in the sense that the very worldview I do want to go into in a second, um, the worldview that he embodies and that he and Balak embody, really, I should say, between them, tells them to look at God a certain way, and at this point he's letting go of it. He understands that the way he looked at God, the way he thought he can relate to God, is no longer relevant. Okay, so let's go into that that piece so that we, we start with that. So what we discover when we take a walk in the shoes of Bil'am and Balak or in their sandals, whatever you want to call it. Definitely sandals. <laughs> in the heat, yeah, I'd <laughs> hope so for their sake. When you walk in their sandals, 
you see very clearly that they believe in God. They're idolatrous people, but they believe in God, in the one God. There's no question that presumably Balak worshipped, you know, uh, various Moabite gods, but he clearly knows that there is a God, whom, the God, I should say, who manages the world. So that the difference is not there. The difference between us and them, between what we're, or I should say what we should be and what was at the time, is not belief in God. The difference is what's the main religious question? What's the question you ask yourself when you look at this God? Rashar Hirsch talks about it a little bit in his uh, comments on the Egel. He says that in the ancient Near East, the main question, I'm rephrasing him a little bit, but the main question a person asks himself is, how do I manipulate God to do my will? And the answers to that lay in a whole variety of practices, some of them astrological. Find the right time when God feels a certain way and manipulate that, aim for that. By the way, according to Masachat Brachot, that was Bil'am's expertise. He could tell what are the moments in the day when God is angry and curse people or nations, as he tries to do in this parsha then, so that God's rage would fuel his words. Somehow. Right, it's like channeling God's moods exactly. almost in that exactly. perspective. Yeah. But the point is not to understand what does God want from you. The, understand is, the point is, how can I use God best? So sometimes it's astrology, sometimes it's by creating figurines and putting them in your temple and bowing down to them. And there's all kinds, of, there's a whole world of practices, but all of them treat the relationship between you, the person doing them, and God is kind of mechanistical. It's like God is a box that you're trying to press the right button. For us, what the Torah wants us to ask is, how do I make my will match God's? How do I make retzoni retzono, as I say in Masachet Avot, right? How do I become worthy of God's favor? How do I change my moral conduct? Not my ritual practices. All the prophets keep talking about that, right? There's so many rebukes about focusing on ritual practice while not following the moral precepts of the Torah. Because the point is not to ask what can God do for me and how do I get him to do it for me, but what can I do to be worthy of being in a relationship with God? Right, it's also Ma'ashem Delish Mimcha, right? That passage that we like to speak of from Micha is, is this question, right? That God demands something of us. You know, it's interesting because the idea of of manipulating God's moods, it works both ways in the ancient perspective of deities. They both felt that God's manipulated each other that God's manipulated them and that they would in turn have to manipulate God to get what they wanted. I mean, it was a very harsh, negative, bullying perspective on God's. And I think that a lot of that is, is not really my opinion. I mean, it's been written about and spoken about by, by scholars who focus on this. It was a very, the world is a really, really rough place for like the majority of human history, except for the past like 90 years, <laughs> right? It was just, the world was a rough place to be in. And so their, their theological perspectives look, meaning God, gods must be rough. They must be out to hurt each other. They're out to hurt us. The, the world wasn't a kind place. And I feel that the Torah so many years prior, right, even before the world was really a kinder place, is already putting into into sort of the DNA, our theological DNA, these ideas of love, right? These ideas of love and compassion. The deities were not were not loving and compassionate. And and so that to live with that kind of tenor of how I can have a relationship with God, certainly today may for some feel more feasible, but think about how hard that was for people 
in all the millennia before the, the really modern era that we're living in now. So it was a rough charge, but I'm just explaining why it is that gods were viewed as, as something you could manipulate. It's because they felt that the gods were manipulative of them because they were looking at the natural world around them, which was a very hard place to survive in. Yeah, I think that's an excellent point. Rav Elimelech Bar Sheol, who writes beautifully, beautifully about Tanakh, um, I don't know he's, he was he was a scholar in the early days of the state, if I'm not mistaken. Mm-hmm. He didn't write much. He died very young, but everything he wrote is mind blowing. I don't think it was ever translated, but it's just highly, highly recommended. And he writes about Parshat Balak specifically that. Balak's expertise in um, manipulating God's rage or aiming for God's rage shows or reveals Balak, um, not Balak, sorry, Bilam's expertise in aiming for God's rage reveals his misunderstanding of God's attributes because even when God is angry, it's a manifestation of chesed because he wants us to live up to our potential. So he's angry when we don't. And the the punishment is meant to prod us to do better. It's not meant to just cause us pain, needless pain. Kind of think about it in a parenting from a parenting perspective, for example. And Bilam, as he says, as Ravali Mehbarshul says, sees a reflection of himself. He feels rage. He feels desire to harm. So he assumes God feels this way also. And he's trying to aim to that without understanding that it's coming out of love. So that's just in context of, uh, of your beautiful point. But I also want to highlight the fact that another thing that comes out from your emphasis on the way people perceive the relationship between gods and people more generally is that the, it's not just the god that they understood differently than we're supposed to, according to the Torah. The whole space that they occupied, they and god or gods, whatever, occupied was a harsh space motivated by interest, by desire, by grasping and the only question is whose desire prevails this particular attribute of it the the overwhelming presence of desire is actually another central axis of the narrative of Bil'am because when we shift the point of view in the beginning of the Parsha we're not just given a glimpse of Israel from the outside. We're not just given some time to spend in the heads of people who really believe you can manipulate God and that if you're going to go on this hill, then maybe you will be able to manipulate God better than if you went on that hill, as Balak clearly believes. We're also given a reminder of a truth we all know, namely that perspective and meaning are tied together that the victories of the Israelites against the Amorites in the previous Parsha, which then seemed like a great miracle and something to be grateful for, suddenly here are a source of great distress because you're looking at it from somebody else's perspective. And this connection between personal perspective and meaning is at the core of Bilam as a character because he is so motivated by his desire to get something. And Chazal read it between the lines when he talks about riches, when he talks about honor, that that's what he wants. He's motivated by this desire to do what the king wants from him so that he would get accolades and riches. That even access to God's truth doesn't wean him from his malice. He is so entrenched in this space you describe where it's all about manipulating each other, it's all about what can you get from others, be they other people or God, that 
truth can literally smack him in the face, as in the ca- or in the foot, as in the case of the donkey, who sees clearer than him at this moment. It's such a beautiful, ironic device there. And he still doesn't let go. He still can't let go. And even that moment of revelation that you referred to before, when he says, Matovo Alecha, and he kind of gave up, he can't manipulate God, he understands it now, he still doesn't let go of his malice, as we find out later in the book, when we read that he was the one who gave the advice to uh, Balak to send the women of Moab to seduce the Israelites. So he realized that he was wrong. Namely, he realized that you can't manipulate God. The only thing you can do is manipulate the Israelites into not being worthy of God's protection. But he's still pursuing that. The fact that God made it so clear to him that these are a blessed people that God loves doesn't change his perception of the world, his perception of what he wants, and his dedication to pursuing it. But it's interesting, two things. One is that Balak reminds me very much of Per'o. Uh, for a number of reasons, both because he opens up his his fears about the people is the same fear that Para opens with in the beginning of Sefer Shemot. They're too numerous, right? I'm worried that they're, they're going to overtake us all. And they both hire somebody. He hires the midwives in, in Shemot, and they do not do what he wants them to do. And here he hires Bil'am, and he also doesn't do what he wants him to do, but for under slightly different circumstances. But So in both cases, we see a king who is concerned about the threat of the people, hires out his fears, basically, to, break, to try and, and control, right? They want to take control of the situation. There he tries to take very physical control by physically killing. And here he tries for a more spiritual or, or theological approach. But you keep speaking about the desire of Bil'am. I see the evil guy as Balak in this story, meaning Bil'am also initially doesn't want to go, right? Bil'am recognizes initially that that God is powerful. These people are, it, he seems to genuinely try and refuse. I know that the Midrash reads him differently, but I, I'm not saying he's a good guy, but I definitely feel like the motivator behind all of this is really Balak as opposed to Bilam, which again, doesn't turn him into a saint, but just throwing it out there. It's interesting because to me, Balak is a sensible king trying to defend his people. I mean, mm. we know that his fears are rooted in fantasy, at least as you read the fears in the Pshat, right? In the Drash, they say that what he really wanted was a land that the Amorites once conquered from him and now the Israelites control. But in the Pshat, he's scared that the Israelites are going to overwhelm Moab itself. Mm-hmm. And we know that God told Moses to tell people not to harm the Moabites. So we know it's rooted in fantasy, but it's not crazy no. for him to think mm-hmm. that they might be a threat for him. Yeah. Um, especially when you take into account what happened to Egypt, you know, 39 years <laughs> earlier. It must have been had certain repercussions or echoes and lore that Balak is looking at and then looking at the same people and freaking out. The reason I think the real villain here, or I, I don't want to call him a villain, but the person whose moral drama is more fraught, let's put it this way, is Bil'am, because Bil'am should know better. Bil'am because has, he has a relationship with God. Because he has a relationship with God, mm-hmm. and because God tells him very clearly from the first time that he asks him that he's not going to let him curse, and yet Bil'am keeps trying. And you're right that he's very correctly expressing the fact that he's not going to be able to do anything without God's support. And yet it begs the question, why does he keep trying? It's clear that he 
keeps hoping that he will be able to change God's mind. He didn't go to Balak to be humiliated. He didn't go thinking that he's going to fail. He's still motivated by this kernel of hopefulness that he will get to manipulate God to doing what he actually should do, namely serve Bil'am's agenda. I wanted to um, comment, though, on the beautiful comparison you drew between the Mayaldot and uh, Bilam. I never thought about it before. Mm-hmm. It's a really beautiful point. And I think it also a point that really strikes at the heart of why Bilam is such an important example for us and why I think we spend so much time looking at the world through his eyes. And it goes back to the question I asked earlier. It goes back to the question I asked earlier about what is it that we're supposed to be an alternative for or what is it that we're supposed to offer a better way to repair it or something like that. When the male dot refuse Pearl's orders, they do it out of their own volition. And they do it because they fear God. It's a very clear text there. It's in the Pshat. They fear God. What does that mean? It means that somehow these women who are in a society that worships their king, where the king has power of life and death over everybody are still capable to pierce with their gaze through the society they're part of and see that outside of this society, outside of their circumstances, there's right and wrong that are eternal and universal. Yoram Chazoni, in his book, uh, The Philosophy of Hebrew Scripture, calls it an Archidemian point of morality, that there's an, uh, an Archidemian point of uh, morality that lies outside the vicissitudes of time, outside who happens to have power at the moment. And in many ways, I think that this perspective, this awareness that there's right and wrong beyond whatever the powers to be want us to believe is right and wrong, is perhaps the greatest gift Judaism gave to the political order of the world. In the sense that whether or not you accept our God and our understanding of what God is, There's no question that the idea that there's certain truths that lie beyond circumstances percolated into cultures, definitely in the West, but I think also beyond. Yeah, what we call the Judeo-Christian morality, essentially. Even if you're not going to accept the limitations or halachic living, those are virtues that we live by. Loving your neighbor, right? You could think of all these these different specifically, But I'm specifically talking less about uh, loving your neighbor and things like that. I'm talking more about the, the... political significance of the idea that the power to be doesn't get to define right and wrong. Meaning, in other words... The human power. The the human human power power to be. Correct. In other words, uh, that space you discussed earlier where we manipulate gods, gods manipulate gods, God manipulate us, where it's really might makes right, right? It's Mm -hmm. just whoever is able to manipulate others more effectively or more forcefully is going to be the one setting or you know, calling the shots, so to speak. That whole space is the space that Judaism is trying to transform. By saying, no, there's something that stands outside it. Right is right. So, for example, the way Jefferson put it, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. And then from that you draw that there's certain rights that no matter who's in power, they're not allowed to violate, is a modern variation on the ancient Jewish idea that you should fear God more than you should fear Paro. And the striking thing about Bilam is that he sees God, he talks to God, he has a relationship with God, and it's not enough to convince him of that truth. And that's why I love the, the fact that you position him and the male dot kind of encounter point to each other because it just highlights how difficult it is 
to overcome your programming, when your programming is pursue your desire, your point of view, your perspective is what should motivate you. In other words, this Parsha that shifts our perspective so dramatically makes us realize how dangerous it is to be stuck in our perspective and how much it can blind us to truth. And the truth is that politically, historically, when people are blind to such truth, truth that exists beyond the political order, it leads to tyranny, it leads to oppression, it leads to exploitation. And this is the danger at the door. This is the danger of giving in to the bilam within us. It's interesting, by the way, in the debate, it's funny, we'll, we'll mention this also in the, the coming episode as well, but the debate whether or not they were Israelite uh, midwives or midwives of the Israelites, of course, it's even more impressive if they're Egyptian midwives, because they, if they're Israelites, well, they're ascribing to a tradition that they've been taught, right, from, from birth almost, that there's something greater than us and, you know, this monotheistic God. But if they're Egyptian women, then it's even more impressive that they're able to, to go beyond themselves. And then the, the comparison to, to Bil'am will be even more powerful, just speaking about a, non, a non-Israelite person who, in their case, was able to reach beyond their perspective and, and see the truth. Um, but I understand that you're saying that he really he travels this fine line and you would expect him to be able to cross that line and and remain on the side of truth and he sort of he constantly fails essentially to do that yeah and lest it comes off as if I'm presenting him as this horrible terrible villain who's willfully blind a la paro with his heavy heart I do want to say and take a step back and say that it's very hard to let go of your perspective. Let's let's be real with each other and, you know, with mm-hmm. within ourselves. When we really want something, when we have strong ambition or when we have strong desire or when we are very convinced that we're right in our particular perspective on an event, it's very, very hard to take a step back and look at it from different perspectives and let go of this consuming point of view that's ours and is who we are. We really need to outgrow who we are to do it, and that's a really difficult thing to do. And I think that, in a sense, that's why Parashat Bilam is relevant to us today, beyond just the theological interest in what is the idolatrous worldview that we were supposed to be an alternative for thousands of years ago. We're all still struggling with recognizing or questioning where is the line between our perspective and truth and in our world it may it's, be the question right now in the yeah, modern age maybe. exactly exactly in many ways as you know the old institution the ancien regimes of ideas collapsed in the west this question has become very very uh, difficult to answer because before there were some institutions some you know the church the state that people felt they could rely on to define certain bigger truth for them. Now, they could have been wrong. I'm not trying to defend um, those old institutions. I'm just saying that as they collapse, as the idea that authority can be invested in these big institutions, they will tell us what's right and wrong, collapsed, the challenge and the responsibility is now on each of our doors, or the doors of our heart, if you want, um, to answer this question. And if we don't answer this question, if we just pursue what we think is right, if we don't question ourselves, this will take us straight back into a society where the only question is, how do you manipulate others to do what What you want? What is my desire today? Exactly. And how do I get others to do it? And not what is right. 
Right. I think this the point that, that I said earlier as sort of a leap is coming right back in here. I and mean, in this idea that this Parsha is inviting us or perhaps commanding us that we have to step outside of ourselves, I think that this idea has become even more pertinent or I would say really even an obligation because we're living in a time when things are so relative. And what people find themselves doing is they surround themselves with other people who share that very relative ideology and then you have just everybody's living in their own their own you know echo chambers however you want to define those spaces and so this parsha again along with its many messages is saying be really really wary of constantly surrounding yourself with everybody who thinks the same thing as you and it's if if everybody's agreeing with you on everything you're saying there's a slight chance <laughs> that you're not living in a genuine space yeah uh, and or that your eyes are not open to the full purview of what's actually going on right now yeah i like that and i i i'd say that the inverse is also true or not exactly the inverse i would say that a flip side of that is that be mindful and if something doesn't quite fit with your perspective, if, for example, your donkey that you've rode, <laughs> you rode on many times and never, you know, did you wrong is suddenly moving to the side, don't just dismiss it. Hmm. Don't be, be blind. Don't yeah. be blind to something exactly. that is clearly um, sort of a, an aberration from the reality, right? It could be that your reality is off. <laughs> exactly. Aberrations, little things that are off, it's all opportunities for us to glimpse a bigger truth. Beyond the benefit that learning from Bilam's negative example um, can grant us on our own personal path to truth, it has a social benefit. Because, as I pointed out before, historically, societies where desire and manipulation are the basic language of, that society is based on tend to end in tyranny and exploitation. But I'd say that there's another threat or another danger in founding our society on personal perspectives uh, that's become more apparent now. I think, than it was in the ancient world with its strong political institutions. Namely, the danger that we would be so enmeshed, or individually, will be so enmeshed in our personal perspective that there's not going to be any shared space, any shared values, any shared uh, ideas in the society. Uh, Rabbi Sachs talks about it as the sacred. The sanctity, the sacredness is the... another way to talk about the shared values that everybody in the society believes in. And they don't necessarily even have to be religious, but there have to be certain values that everybody agrees are meaningful and should influence the way they live their life. What it gives beyond a sense of cohesion for society, which is all well and good, but if the values are bad, then maybe not worth it. The other benefit, though, that it grants society is that it creates boundaries, of we don't do this, we don't do that. And then within those boundaries, people can share the space without stepping on each other's toes, without manipulating each other, without focusing all the time on getting something out of somebody else. Because there are certain spaces that are just clean from that, that they're just the spaces we all agree on together. We're watching a crisis in, of the sacred. Even here in the state of Israel, with the current uh, political situation, we are not certain that we're sharing the same values anymore. And if we heed the warning or the call that Bilam represents of checking our own premises, of trying to recognize where our perspective ends and maybe bigger truth begin, 
I hope, I believe, I pray that we can find our way back to a shared language and shared boundaries and a space that we can share more healthily and more happily together. Rachel, thank you for this conversation. Always a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you, Yosefa. My pleasure and my honor. I hope you've enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. I'm Dr. Yosefa Fogel-Rubel, and this is One-on-One Women Talk Torah, a series brought to you by Matan Women's Institute for Torah Study. Please do one-on-one and women's Torah learning a small favor by sharing this podcast with family and friends so that we can reach new listeners. You can stream and download these episodes on Spotify, iTunes, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Matan's website. Don't forget to leave us a five-star review in the comments. Please send us any feedback at podcast at matan.org.il. That's podcast at matan.org.il. Thanks for listening, everyone.